Hello there. I didn't see you come in. This is uh, Alex Dorada-Wolf, one of the hosts of EE Phone Poem, the podcast that you're listening to right now. I uh, just want to give you a heads up that this is our first episode, so the edit's a bit rougher than it's going to be in subsequent episodes. But um, all of the heart and the analysis and the hearty analysis are right in there, and oh, they're so rich and good. A uh, little warning, we do swear on this show. Um, nothing crazy. Uh, we do use the F word. Um, nothing like gendered or certainly no slurs or anything like that. And um, the subject matter we talk about is generally very uh, PG. And if it's not going to be and, you know, we're doing a bit of a spicy poem or something, we'll be sure to let you know in the uh, little episode uh, preamble like this one. This poem is perfectly PG. Uh, unless you're offended by uh, winter. Uh, if you if you hate winter, don't listen to this. Uh, thank you for downloading. Please enjoy the show. April is the cruelest month, breeding lilacs out of the dead land, mixing memory and desire. Could you check if that's a reference to Edmund Olick Spencer? All way out, speakers make you bob south, on and mouth, rose pretty pilgrims drop, rocket with Jeff Chouse. Mother wrote analysis, not poeturalysis, get the Shelley phone bill SPA'd up by Roan, Lord. He's coming back to phone home. What? E.E.'s coming back to phone poem. Oh. We will say when the beginning starts beginning and thus the beginning begins. Is it beginning? The beginning is beginning. Are you ready to begin? I am. I'm ready to begin. I'm going to go get a glass of water. What? Yeah, I'm back. I got water. I'm actually, I'm drinking barley water. Gnarly barley. Gnarly barley water, daughter. Yeah, I mean, obviously we'll just start rhyming when we don't know what to say. Because, it's you know, it's a poetry podcast, so we can get away with that finally. Yeah, no, it'll be our gimmick, <laughs> Slimmick. Uh, all right. Okay, I guess we will begin now. Hello and welcome to EE Phone Poem. Yes, EE Phone Poem. That is the name of our podcast that we are welcoming you to. Now, the joke is that E.T. Phone Home is a phrase from the uh, movie E.T., the extraterrestrial, which the small, weird, weird tree alien says because he wants to go back to his planet. Whereas E.E. Phone Poem is, of course, a line from a famous E. Cummings poem. The Extraterrestrial. We are two people who like poetry. Specifically, we like poems from the 19th and 20th centuries. Well, we like other poems, too. But for the sake of this podcast, that's what we most like. Yeah, so we thought having a narrower scope would make us more approachable. Everyone loves a narrow scope. Yeah, that's that's what that's what doctors say with their throat scopes. And speaking of doctors looking at people's throats, today we're going to be covering the Wall of Stevens poem, The Man Whose Pharynx Was Bad. Pharynx means like the throat. In fact, in ancient Greek, it just means throat. Um, I actually wasn't ready to do that segue, but it was just so perfect that uh, I had left it the opportunity. Yeah, it was probably good. We uh, we moved on from the thin scopes thing. So uh, anyway, the way the podcast is going to work is we're going to read a poem, then we're going to talk about it and analyze it because our favorite thing is analyzing stuff and poetry is a kind of stuff. It's good for analyzing. It's the best thing about poetry. Some people think poetry is supposed to make you feel something. 
I say it's supposed to make you feel like analyzing. Feel like analyzing a poem. Damn right. All right. Seriously, though, the emotional aspect of poetry is important, and we believe that through analysis, the depth of meaning and emotion can be enhanced. We'll probably be crying for hours after we finish this analysis. Crying about that poor man and his bad, bad pharynx. Why is it so bad? (laughs) He should drink some honey. Immortal words from an immortal man. Yes. All right. Um, Oh, uh, I'm Kier. Oh, fuck. (laughs) What was your name again? Shit, what name am I going by on this? I guess I should just go by my pod name. My name is Pado. (laughs) The pod man. Hello there. I didn't see you come in. I'm Alex Dorada Wolf. And I'm Keir Willett. And this is EE Phone Poem. It's a podcast about 19th and 20th century poetry, where each week we read a poem and then analyze it. You know what? Fuck this intro. Let's just do the damn thing. Okay, this week we're going to be covering the Wallace Stevens poem, The Man Whose Pharynx Was Bad. Pharynx is a medical term for the kind of your throaty, nosy, back-your-neck face part. Right. Like, you know that thing behind your face? It's that. Your soul? <laughs> well, we'll have plenty of time to debate the existence of the soul later. I hope so. Uh, maybe just a little quick biographical background of Wallace Stevens. Well, yeah, Wallace Stevens uh, is notable among modernist poets for his weirdly normal life. Yeah, he worked for an insurance company basically his entire life. He rose through the ranks. He did quite well there. Uh, it, and basically nothing ever happened to him except once he punched Hemingway in the face. But that was really just kind of a fluke. Like he ran into him at a bar or something. and Yeah, and then Hemingway beat the shit out of him. Because obviously. Yeah, Stevens is a poet that a lot of people have a bit of trouble with because uh, he be weird. Yes, he is uh, very fond of using very obscure vocabulary, uh, twisted syntax, old meanings of, of words where you think that you know what they mean and then it turns out that you don't. Uh, you know, and that's even before getting into the incredibly complex metaphysical dimension of his poetry. Yep. Stevens be weird. But he happens to be one of our favorites, too, because he be so weird. There's there's a lot of, of scope for analysis, a large scope for analysis, if you will. <sighs> I set you up, man. Go on. I was just going to use the scope joke from earlier. Oh, I thought that that was in the part that we cut. We cut it, but then we said, fuck it. We're just going back and editing all that together into something usable. Well, whatever. There will be scopes everywhere. I guess I'll make the joke again, just to be safe. So set it up again. Uh, Steven's weirdness gives a lot of scope for analysis. Wait, that... No, that's not... The joke doesn't even make sense, Kier. All you have to do is... Speaking of scopes... Okay, right. Speaking of scopes, a doctor would use something called a throat scope to look at your pharynx. If it were bad. Good job. Is it called a throat scope? I don't know. (laughs) All right, all right. Let's hope that we're good at actually analyzing the poem here. Yeah, you should read it because you've got a better voice. Maybe we should read it together. (laughs) Oh, Jesus. (laughs) Uh, That might be kind of cool. I think, yeah, but probably... Nobody will will be able to understand us. So let's do something. Let's do something dramatic. I'll read. I'll read the first three lines of every stanza, and you read the last one. 
That's a terrible idea. It's going to be fine. Let's go. All right. The time of year has grown indifferent. Mildew of summer and the deepening snow are both alike in the routine I know. I am too dumbly in my being pent. The wind attendant on the solstices blows on the shutters of the metropoles, stirring no poet in his sleep and tolls. The grand ideas of the villages. The malady of the quotidian. Perhaps if winter once could penetrate through all its purples to the final slate. Come on, man. No, my poem is different looking. What the hell? It is? Uh, yeah, that, is that vert? Is that one just missing from the link I pulled up? What the hell? We should probably make a point to be referencing the same text, actually. Uh, yeah, uh... You just use the one in the, in the Bloom book. Uh, that's really weird. Hmm. The one in the Bloom book is a stanza shorter than the ones online. Well, all right. That's, I guess that's something we need to address. <laughs> uh, yeah. We should probably figure out what the fuck is up with that. Hello again. Realized that we uh, did not tell you the name of the book that we were referencing. So here it is. The Best Poems of the English Language, edited by Harold Bloom. Copyright 2004, published by Harper Collins. ISBN 006. Zero five four zero four one nine. All right. So the first version of the man whose pharynx was bad had four lines, which Stevens cut when he included the poem in the nineteen thirty one edition. Well, all right. Then I guess we should cut them, and then we'll go back and comment on them. Yeah, that's interesting. In cutting these lines, Stevens left the final version's third rhyming quatrain imperfect. That's important to note. Oh, good. Yeah, we can dig into that. So, yeah, we should probably address both versions. And we should probably talk about how to do that structurally. Let's address the shorter version as the primary text, because it's the, you know, the one that he ended up going with. When it comes up, we'll, we'll, we'll put, talk about the other version. Yeah, all right. Um, okay, let's let's just start reading. Let's 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 take the reading again. How should we do the reading? I think it sounded okay, but I, maybe it would sound cooler if we just did it together. We could also that's too fucking cute. We could each read it once, and then in editing we can intercut or pick whichever sounds better. So Kier's sounded better. The time of year has grown indifferent. Mildew of summer and the deepening snow are both alike in the routine I know. I am too dumbly in my being pent. The wind attendant on the solstices blows on the shutters of the metropoles, stirring no poet in his sleep and tolls the grand ideas of the villages. The malady of the quotidian. Perhaps if winter once could penetrate through all its purples to the final slate, persisting bleakly in an icy haze, one might in turn become less diffident. Out of such mildew plucking neater mold and spouting new orations of the cold, one might, one might, but time will not relent. 
So I guess this poem is about um, uh, a guy whose pharynx was bad. Was was bad. Yeah, yeah. That's it, man. And I think it's. He think he doesn't. I think he has a mildew problem in his house, and maybe he's in search of a better cleaning product. And it's snowing. All right, this has been EE Phone Poem. All right, all right. Now let's 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 get in here. So uh, let's let's start by talking about structure. We've got rhyming quatrains with an A B B A pattern, uh, more or less iambic pentameter. Uh, pretty loose, but it's it's definitely you know there's there's some substitutions. Uh, some anapests and and crap like that instead of I am sometimes, but it's it's you know it's an iambic bass. And then we have the third stanza uh, where the rhyme scheme is is broken. Uh, the malady of the quotidian, the the a's there, quotidian and pays. Not really a not a proper rhyme, barely even a slant. Would you even call that a slant rhyme? I don't think that's a rhyme at all. Yeah, I don't think that's a, a rhyme at all. And hey, a and no, that's 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 not even that's not even the the same vowel sound, is it? No, it, they're just two different words. Yeah. Okay. The logistical reason, the historical reason. The genesis of that that break is is that originally this poem had a different form. I I qualify as saying that that's the reason because this is the final form that Stevens wanted the poem in, and you know he could have rewritten it in such a way as to preserve the rhyme scheme if he wanted to. So obviously we've got to accept that the fact that it doesn't rhyme there is a deliberate artistic choice. Uh, but maybe we should uh, inform our audience of. The, exactly how the original version went there. So originally, after the line, stirring no poet in his sleep and tolls the grand ideas of the villages, the next stanza continues, the malady of the quotidian, perhaps if summer ever came to rest and lengthened, deepened, comforted, caressed through days like oceans in obsidian. Right. So obsidian, quotidian, there's a real rhyme for you. That's a rhyme. Got all the syllables and everything. Then it continues into horizons full of night's midsummer blaze. Perhaps if winter once could penetrate, and then it continues as in the original. And then you have Blaze and Haze, um, which is a very standard rhyme. Maybe even a little too on the nose. Right. And then the final stanza, hopefully we'll get a sense of uh, some of the deeper reasons behind this change. Uh, but certainly just on a, on a surface level, in the original version, this is, this is much more poetic than anything in... Uh, in the the poem as it stands, right? I, and by by poetic here, I I mean you know a sort of traditional romantic era musicality, right? Length and deep and comforted, caressed. The uh, the excise stanza is very kind of it's poemy. It's poemy, and it's obvious that obviously when Stevens was was writing that, he was he was doing that intentionally because it, it was you know it's an evocation of of this vision of summer a summer that is there to, to stay that is supposed to be a deliberate contrast with the winter setting of the rest of the poem but in the end uh 
in the end, of course, he he chose not to to cut away from the the actual poem for that vision of something else. He he made us stay with it, even though staying with that ugliness gives us a more monochrome poem. Even you know, and and of course, the ugliness literally being reflected in the way that the the rhyme breaks down there for us. But I think we're getting ahead of ourselves. We should start with the beginning. Just quickly before we depart, um, I almost feel like that stanza just seems like uh, an excuse to have his cool quotidian obsidian rhyme in there, because it's a very good rhyme. <laughs> it is a good rhyme. With I mean, so it's, a, it's a hard word to rhyme. Top marks for the rhyme there, <laughs> as if <laughs> I can judge his work. Ha 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 ha. But yeah, no, we'll, we'll come back to it. So uh, kind of speaking more generally about the 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 story of the poem. Basically, the poet here is expressing a sense that summer and winter have become the same to him. Before we get into that, I guess let's just let's address the title quickly, shall we? You know, so the man whose pharynx was bad, the, the you know, the obvious reading here is, you know, so he's got a he's got a sore throat. So so speaking pains him. Right. And and, I mean, this is this is reflected in in, you know, the images of being pent dumbly uh, or silently in one's being. The the poets in the second stanza are sleeping. The the final stanza ends with a, a vision of new orations that are not delivered. So so silence is here, an enforced silence or lack of inspiration. Right. So. Whatever this this conf- this conflating of the seasons mean, it has something to do with that that silence. Uh, I mean, maybe we even want to say that the this overly medical formal title is a reflection of that silence on another level, right? You know, if it's about if it's about poetic inspiration somehow drying up, the fact that he couldn't even summon a poetic title might have significance. Um, I mean. You say it's not poetic, but I think the man whose pharynx was bad is still more poetic than, like, the guy with a sore throat. Well, I suppose it is, but, you know, I I, I suppose this, this is just the messiness of trying to use the word poetic and when talking about poetry. Uh, it means so many different things. <laughs> yeah, no, th- this poem is, is more of a poem than other poems, which, of course, is silly, but also true of some poems. Sure. But yeah, just looking at that title there, the man whose pharynx was bad, I think even trying to call that medical is a stretch. That's like, like a doctor would never be like, oh yeah, his throat is bad. It's, um... Yeah, sure. Well, in the... Yeah, it, I mean, it's it's like, it's... It's like an alien way of speaking. It's just... It's like a, a like, like overhearing a game uh, where, like, a doctor's child is playing doctor. <laughs> Like somehow, somehow he's got, he's picked up on the word pharynx, but he hasn't, you know, but he's still using kid language for the rest of it. Yeah. Well, I mean, considering that the poem is about this lacking inspiration, we can kind of see that in the title itself with just the struggle to try to put together like, like the overly technical and flowery pharynx (laughs) with the just, well, the weird passive voice. These are English man words I know. Exactly. This man, pharynx bad. Like, it's just the utter failure to put words together in a way that makes sense. And there's something very fitting about that. Because even as kind of technically messy and weird as it is, it is, it's an interesting turn of phrase. It sounds interesting and kind of makes you go, huh? 
man whose pharynx was bad. That's got to mean something. And that's something Stevens is generally very good about with his titles, kind of inviting analysis through the title. Yeah. A lot of poets just do disregard the title and just be like, uh, yeah, sure, this poem is whatever. Just call it the like a lot of poets don't even title their poems. They just they're just called by the first line. Uh, Can I give an outrageously esoteric reading of that title? Go for it. You know, I mean, with any other poet, I would say that this is absurd, but Stephen's love of, of etymology makes me wonder if he wants us to reflect on on the far and pharynx, the P-H-A-R, which, uh, of course, is the same prefix as in pharmacy, which derives from pharmacon or drug, medicine or poison in ancient Greek. If we really pushed it there, he could be saying that that the cure itself, that this man's cure itself is bad, that, you know, the way that the way that the man can can heal himself uh, is itself sickened. Huh. That is that's pretty out there. Pretty out there. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I buy that. Um I don't know if I buy it either, but you know, we, what are we here for if not to throw out outrageously esoteric readings when we see them, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. No, no, I think the world is richer for that. Well, and then the fact that, and then the fact that that duality repeats within the meaning of the original Greek term itself. So you have a duality buried within a duality. Pretty cool. Uh, the duality he is referring to there is uh, how pharmacon can mean both medicine and poison. Which is its own thing. Yeah, I mean, everybody knows that because of Derrida, right? Yeah, everybody knows that because of Derrida. (laughs) Come on, everyone read that stupid Derrida Uh, thing. Read it or read the Wikipedia page on it. Yeah, I certainly didn't make it through an entire Derrida essay either. Come on. Well, how can you read it? Uh, You know, language doesn't mean anything, man. (laughs) Exactly. Writing stuff down is stupid. (laughs) Isn't that like his thesis? I feel like it is. I think so. I think so. Well, um, yeah, take that, Derrida. Uh, yeah, we uh, we we put him in play- his place. So I think podcast over. Every podcast ends when we get a good uh, good insult against Derrida, in, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. Tune in next week for. Moving on. <laughs> Well, you, you, you trailed off because language doesn't really exist. Yeah, that's what I was doing. All right, moving on. The poem itself. So I think maybe we should just go through the poem and and do a summary of the baseline ideas in each stanza. Just what's the arc of the poem? Starts off by saying, summer and winter, they feel the same. Because I am shut up in myself. Uh, see what I did with shut up there? Yeah, exactly. I'm trapped in my stupid body. And I can't speak. And uh, he also ascribes their similarity to his daily routine. Right. Yeah. So surface level meaning first stanza seems seems pretty, pretty clear. He does the same thing in summers and in winters, and he can't really tell them apart at this point. Uh, Now, (laughs) now we get the wind attendant on the solstices. Blows on the shutters of the metropoles. Okay, now metropole, uh, we did look this up. It means city, like you'd think. Basically, but it also has the meaning of the home territory of an empire. 
and also uh, the see of an urban bishop. Probably doesn't mean that one very much, but who knows? Webster also has it as the name of a Salvation Army hostel. Although, actually, I, I don't want to entirely write away the religious uh, meaning because we do have bells in the next line. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, we can reserve judgment on whether this is a religious or secular metropole, whether it is him just saying metropolis in a way that rhymes with toll, or if there's some more stuff going on there. With Stevens, I think it's generally better to assume that there's some stuff going on. Yeah. Now, uh, what do we make of the wind attendant on the solstices? Uh, well... The baseline reading there is the wind that is there during the summer and winter solstices, being the longest and shortest days of the year. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, I suppose that is just the basic meaning there. The wind attendant on the solstices blows on the shadows of the metropoles. All right, uh, but it stirs no poet in his sleep. Yeah, okay. Uh, so the, and, the, and this is interesting, though. Stirring no po- poet in his sleep and tolls the grand ideas of the villages. So the grand ideas of the villages, although it sounds grand at first, is actually being paired with this action that does not stir the poet. So obviously the poet then does not seem to care about these grand ideas of the villages. I think the grand ideas of the villages is supposed to be quite ironic, as if villages have grand ideas, right? I think so. I think it is... um... And we get uh, the contrast between the cities, the metropoles, and the villages here. So it blows on the shutter just as in it's not remarked upon by the cities. It's like whatever. Wind's blowing on the windows. Right. And the villages are, and, and the stupid villagers and the stupid villages are all like, oh, the wind, the wind. It's like, ooh, it's summer, guys. Isn't that cool? Oh, longest day of the year, Frankie. Right, right. Which then, you know... I, I think that irony reflects back on itself and becomes ironic, becomes double ironic when when you consider that the solstices are cool, to put it bluntly. Like, you know, the poet is supposed to care about these things on a level. The poet, a poet ought to care about such things. Uh, if time itself and the changing of the seasons means nothing to the poet, I don't know that he's doing his job very well, which I, I guess is the point, right? Exactly. It's, it's you know, the poet, uh, it's, it's actually quite evocative there. It's just like, you know, this um, poet being like, stupid villagers, you can't write poems about nature and seasons. Bah. Yeah, so I think that in a, in a subtle way, this suggests that the silence of the, of the poet has something to do with the poet having become over-sophisticated in a sense. Yeah, just losing touch. Right, the kind of man who goes around... Referring to his pharynx. Right. And metropoles. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, the way that that ties right into the opening of the next stanza, the malady of the quotidian. <laughs> right. Just this, this overwrought, pointlessly overwrought language. Because there we do have overwrought language that is just, that's not poetic. That's... Victorian sounding nonsense. Yeah, no, sure. Just being like the sickness of daily life is more poetic than the malady of the quotidian. Right, right. Yeah, it's 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 pretty obnoxious. Saying something is poetic is silly, but uh that ain't poetic. No. Okay, so third third stanza uh right, the malady of the quotidian. So this is our broken stanza. 
we get we get the malady of the quotidian. All right, then we get our our glimpse of uh, of the way out here, which is if winter could just be bad enough, right, or harsh enough, if it could stop just being being winter and come to to be some sort of symbolic winter. I mean, I guess I guess bluntest possible term like the man wants a rock bottom. Yeah, the idea of a winter so powerful that it just shatters like all of these daily life illusion kind of thing. The image here of um winter penetrating its purples to the final slate um is very nice, I think. It is. Purples there kind of, uh, I think, holding a double meaning of both uh, the prettier colors of winter, you know, um, the night sky being all purpley and ice and those kind of things. But also just this kind of rarefied poetic quality that can be ascribed to winter moving past all of that, like as in, say, purple prose. Right. Like the malady of the quotidian. Yeah. And then passing all of that to just this archetypical uh, cold deathness. Cold deathness of winter. Cold deathness. Yes. This is right. And and then we get our, our failure to rhyme here, uh, which which really I mean I totally see why he went with this. It is it's very effective that the this icy haze that kills the purple also kills the musicality of the of the movement of the words here. Quite nice. Yeah, the winter that uh, breaks apart the rhyme to find the poetry. Oh, and of course, the dual meaning there, rhyme and rhyme, ice and uh, the word thing. Hey, not in the poem, but clever. Hey, I, it's there. Yeah, all right. You know, it, I, you know, I said my, my pharmacon thing. So, you know, that, that's, that's less of a stretch than mine. Yeah, I mean, at least the poem is about writing poetry and also winter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it occurred to him, but then he was like, "Nah, man, that's too obvious." Okay, and then so uh, then worth worth mentioning. Obviously, we want to respect artistic intentionality because we're not fucking Derrida here. But so we're going to respect that his final version of the text. But in the original version, there was another way out, and that other way was if summer ever came to rest. And so he he is he has apparently decided that nope, summer's not gonna ever cut it. The only way out is if winter could do this thing. Yeah, and frankly, I buy his revised version more than I buy the original. Oh yeah, me too. It feels like I feel like it's in the original for the purposes of symmetry. I do as well. I do as well. And because well, and also because on a metaphorical level, what happens when you say that winter and summer have become one to you. You don't mean, you don't really mean that that they are both, you certainly don't mean they're both summer and you don't really mean that there's some mix of the two because mixes of the two are spring or fall. You mean they both become winter, right? Yeah, yeah. And and just, and even the question of what summer is even supposed to be doing in the, the summer stanza. What? It's lengthening, deepening, comforting, correct. Okay, great. Those are all things a season can do. Through through days like oceans in obsidian. It's it's ridiculous. And I think it's it's I think it was intentionally ridiculous. And the ridiculousness 
was why it, it simply wasn't there. I mean, it simply wasn't a real option in the original, but I don't, we don't need it. I see why he got rid of it. I do too. I, I like the choice to get rid of it quite a bit. Also, you get rid of that stupid Haze Blaze rhyme. Yeah, I mean, that though, through all its purples to the final slate persisting bleakly in an icy haze, like it's really beautiful and it's somewhat undercut by the dumb rhyme. Full of of night's midsummer blaze. I mean, okay, Shakespeare Jr., good job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Sorry, Mr. Stevens, I love you. <laughs> but uh, he agreed. I feel like I can be mean about these lines that he cut out. Oh, yeah, no, that's totally fair. But yeah, just like if I were writing this poem, I wouldn't be happy with the blaze haze rhyme either. Nah, for sure. And I'd be sad to lose Quotidian and Obsidian. But there's such a strong artistic reason for it. Yeah, and it's just like, what days like Oceans and what does Oceans and Obsidian even mean? It, it's it's a striking image, but it also just feels like, oh, look, this thing is this other thing that it's not usually. I did a metaphor. Yeah, I mean, it's it's I mean, it obviously just represents the eternal tempestuous changing ocean being frozen into something solid and reliable. And it's it's right as obsidian is a volcanic rock. Yeah. So it's this roiling life chaos thing turned into. Yeah, OK, fine. Oceans and obsidian's good. It's good. It just it didn't fit because the rest of the stanza wasn't doing anything. Yeah. OK. Final stanza in the real poem. And the original poem, for that matter. But yeah, it's the same stanza in both poems, so it's doubly significant. <laughs> doubly. That's right. Doubly, <laughs> doubly significant. Ah, <laughs> uh, indubably. So, if winter could do this thing, uh, if winter could all, could be all super winter, one might become less diffident. You know, diffident is one of those words that I. I was looking it up. I feel like we could use a, a dictionary definition for because I know what it, I, I know it has a sense of like indifferent, uh, uh, you know, uncertain, uncaring, something like that. But yeah, but it, maybe there's something concrete there I don't want to miss. Yeah. Okay. So Merriam-Webster defines diffident as hesitant in acting or speaking through lack of self-confidence. Oh, it's interesting. Even even the Webster mentions hesitance in speaking. Oh, that is interesting. Yeah. Um, meaning too, which is archaic, is distrustful. That's another one of those reasons why it's one of those words that you're just like, hmm, does that mean? Because like, oh, you're reading an old thing and here it means untrustworthy or di- or not, uh, not untrustworthy, distrustful, which mean different things. And then three means reserved and unassertive. That sounds awfully similar to one, but okay. It's more general. I mean, I'm not Noah Webster. You're not? Hello, I'm Noah Webster, returned from the grave to discuss poetry on a podcast under an assumed name. Ha ha, I fooled you all. I'm back. Ah, <laughs> uh, you did make a deal with the devil. Ha <laughs> ha. Ah, now that's a reference to the devil and Daniel Webster, which was, um... Uh, is that, uh, is that, an, is that, what's his name? Uh, is that Nathaniel Hawthorne? I think so. Uh, let's just check. <laughs> yeah. This is important. <laughs> that was that was like our man, that was like the first like actually really funny off the cuff thing we got in. Now we gotta ruin it, huh? Yep. <laughs> we do. Listen, we gotta let people know what they're in for. Nope, it's not. Good thing we checked. It's by Stephen Vincent Benet. Woo. Okay. 
uh, is best known for his book-length narrative poem on the Civil War, for which he won a Pulitzer Prize in 1929. Wow, okay. Why is the devil and Daniel Webster a thing that we know then? Doesn't really... It was made into movies. Okay. All right, not relevant. Um, no. Not relevant. (laughs) Well, no, you see, Stevens knew that Diffident would send us <laughs> to, towards the dictionary and, and and predicting the likelihood that an American audience would go for Webster's dictionary. No. Right. And well, no, and it's important to note that when Stevens wrote the poem, uh, Stephen Vincent Benet was like 19 and wouldn't write the devil and Daniel Webster for another 15 or so years. Yeah, Stevens was really ahead of his time. Actually, Devil and Daniel Webster's way later than I thought it was. Yeah, no, it is. Oh, okay. Now, this is why we were confused. It was inspired by Washington Irving's short story, The Devil and Tom Walker. Uh, All right. Yeah, I can see that because I did have a vague association of it being kind of a 19th century story. All right. We are wasting so much time. Um, No, no, this is good. It's it's not. um, This is fine. Wasting time. We're talking about interesting stuff. All right, if you say so. No, it is. Like, as long as we're not just... No, this is fine. People love this in podcasts when people... Do they? And makes us look both... It looks like we know stuff, but are also self-effacing and willing to admit that we're wrong. You're right. We're so sexy. We are so sexy. Everyone's going to want to respect us so hard. (laughs) Yeah, man. Okay. Uh, But we should get back to it. Right, right, right. Pharmacon. Right. right. Uh, right. <laughs> so, okay. So, as as we were saying, last stanza, uh, if winter could could get, like, that winter on your ass, then one might become less diffident, which probably does not primarily bear the meaning of distrustful, uh, but rather... Right, no, it's the other thing. The, the one about not talking, which is also the thing the poem's about. Right. Uh, out of such mildew plucking neater mold, we should, we'll address the double meaning there later, and spouting new orations of the cold, one might, one might, but time will not relent. Okay, I mean, leaving aside time will not relent for a second, because I don't think we're ready for that shit. Uh, that that next levels the whole thing, man. Yeah, it does. Because you're like, wait, what? But no, we're not like what yet. We're going to be like what later. But now we're just talking about mold. Right. Uh, so for now, leaving the, the, the very end aside, I, I'd say the basic meaning is is just the the encounter with winter on that uber winter level would inspire the poet to be able to 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 speak uh once again uh to spout these new orations to to become you know a a poetic channel for this cold so interesting though that it is right so interesting that the mechanism that is going to awake the poet is going to inspire the poet only to create poetry about the mechanism itself you know it's not as if winter wakes him up and the poet is talking about summer again and oceans of obsidian you know it's it's going to wake him up to talk about winter but it can't even do that well it's because there is only winter 
Well, that's the secret meaning of this poem. Yeah, of course. Is so That's the level one secret meaning of the poem. Level one secret meaning of the poem is that all of the other seasons are just Illuminati conspiracies. Uh, we joke, but uh, I guarantee that level one secret meaning is going to become vernacular of the podcast. Yeah, that's true. And we're going to talk about level one and level two secret meanings. <laughs> right. Like, it, it, it's just a neater way of saying it. Unless you want to be like, but the eccentric double core is... Yeah, 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 no. That's fair. Level one secret meaning. As opposed to the transcendental truth. Yeah. <laughs> keep it keep it basic. Interesting question here. Or, I have a question here that I think is interesting. Um, now, when he says, out of such mildew, plucking neater mold... What version of neat do you think he's using? Because that word can mean a lot of things. Uh, I I think he means, you know, dandy, fine. Marked by tasteful simplicity, precise, systematic. Marked by scalar ingenuity. It's such a Stevensy usage of that word that I, I'm I'm almost just inclined to go, well, it's it's, you know, it's the Stevens neat. But that's super recursive and unhelpful. <laughs> What's the Stevens neat? No, I just mean that the, it, there's a character to the to using neat in that context that is just highly Stevensy. I, I that's super recursive and unhelpful. I know. No, he means it like he means in the other poems. A oh, great. Well, and I don't even know that he uses it in the other poems, but he might use it in the other poems. But if he did, if he did use it in other poems, he would be meaning it in the same way he's meaning it here. <laughs> exactly. Glad you follow. Our goal is to make poetry accessible. <laughs> so show people how it relies on um, meanings of words. That are only understandable through a kind of abstraction of their other collected works. Uh, child's play. I guess we probably do need to unpack this a little more because that is so unsatisfactory. Now, obviously, the baseline meaning of neat, meaning tidy or clean and orderly, is interesting when paired with mold. Right. Because mold isn't clean. That's weird. Yeah, I almost feel like... The best way to read neat would be uh, would be to read two meanings into it, uh, maximized for paradoxical effect with the two meanings of mold. Now, that's obviously doable when you read it as cleaner mold, as in the growth. I don't know that it's as obvious what the contradictory meaning would be if you read mold as in a cast. Well, you could be plucking mildew out of a cast. Uh-huh. Yeah. So as to make the thing that you're casting, because I imagine the mildew would screw up your sculpture, create little imperfections. Right. Out of, well, out, well, out of such plucking... Sh- uh, okay, so in that case, neater would still bear the meaning, primary meaning of clean, but... Or more orderly, too. Right. Because it's like these little chaos blips in your... I mean, that's another thing, is that mildew, I believe, is kind of a chaotic, speckly sort of mold. As opposed to, like, um, a nice fuzzy mold that grows in nice little circles outward. Yeah, right. Okay. I mean, I feel like these... Perhaps there's, there's botanical, technical interpretations here that are specific. But in common usage, anyway, these 
these are pretty much synonyms. So, yeah, well, not to uh, nitpick, but I don't believe mold falls under the definition of botany because it's not a plant, the bacteria, I think, or a fungus. It's a fungus. You're plucking a little neatly there, man, but all right. Yeah, so it's not botany here, not to nitpick. <laughs> hey, listen, we're going to get emails to the email address we haven't set up yet. Uh, anyone who would send that email doesn't sound like a fun guy to me, but whatever you say. Okay, so I think we figured out what the mildew line means. Well, okay. Uh, oh, that's, this is a stretch, but uh, mildew also grows across the surface of things. You could almost say it takes a mold of what it grows across. Uh, okay. Right, right. Finding the shape of the object by examining the pattern of mildew. Sort of a, a, a world of forms thing. Right. Now, that's really weird and interesting, though, when we're talking about this super wintry winter, right? Why are we even talking about mildew? It seems like we're, it seems as if we're talking about a world that wouldn't have mildew in it anymore. Well, I think that that is to some extent a relic of the initial version of the poem, because mildew is directly associated with summer in the first stanza. So you had your... Well, okay, no, but that's not even a relic of the first version of the poem. You're right, though, to point this out, you know, because it's it's in it's here in the, the final version, too. Right, but like a relic of the first version in that you had a thing about summer, then a thing about winter. Then in the final stanza, we get that in microcosm with a line about the summer thing and a line about the winter thing. Right, but the poem as it exists still sets up the equivalency of summer and winter. So it still gives us the mechanism to allow us to make that leap. Right, right, right. Because summer and winter are the same. Mildew exists in this weird winter thing, too. Right. Yeah, okay. So it's a testament, actually, to the bleakness of this icy haze, uh, this final slate, that it is It is not a transcendence of... Uh, of this equivalency, this mixing of the seasons, it is it is the final, the most mixed version. It is it is so mixed a version that summer's mildew is is growing across the ice. Yeah, and and I think there is um, just a kind of a similarity in class to mildew and ice. Sure, the way they cover things in their respective seasons. Oh, okay. Uh, so one could say then, right, the final slate, the icy haze. Out, okay, out of such mildew, uh, grammatically, um, actually, icy haze is the last thing that such would logically be referring to. So it is. So I believe that I, we could say that a... Secret meaning level one meaning here is mildew equals ice. Ah, the plot thickens. Mm -hmm. Well, and then, so that's interesting. Oh, okay. So first we thought that mildew was just mildew and then mold could go either way. Mold could either be, you know, this gross thing or this, uh, or this clean sounding uh, other thing. But now it looks like actually mildew could go either way in which case the fact that mold could still mean a something a growth thing is is really interesting because that's saying then that 
these new orations of the cold, the thing that the poet is plucking out of the ice is a, is actually a kind of growth. Right. Okay. So out of the, yeah. So you're plucking some kind of life out of ice and mildew. That's what it is in both of those lines. Right. It's very interesting to be able to find life in this state of winter super death. Right. Which is it's which is reflected then and what Stevens himself is doing by making this equivalency between ice and mildew. Stevens himself is is finding life in winter super death. Well, I mean, I think that's an important level because the one might one might that this ends with the tragic ending here is obviously belied by the uh, the the poem itself. I mean, you know that. Which, which, I mean, it's almost too obvious to, you know, to bear mentioning, but perhaps it should be mentioned that obviously any poem that is about not being able to write a poem is wearing its paradox on its sleeve. But it's, 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 it's actually a very good illustration of how paradox isn't inherently nonsensical. How so? Well, I, I feel like a lot of people... Um, when they brush up against a paradoxical idea or something like that in a poem, they're just like, well, that contradicts itself. Isn't that weird? LOL. Here we can have a poem about not being able to write a poem that is still very much a poem, but also very much about not being able to write a poem. It doesn't stop being about that just because its existence existence contradicts its premise. No, and neither does the fact that a, a kind of life is being plucked out of this ice here uh, mean that it's not still ice because what is what is being spouted is still, however much it might be a new oration, it is still of the cold. And so instead of having the, the, the contradictory elements cancel each other out, you actually arrive at a newer and more complex meaning. The idea of this special kind of poetry about not being able to write poetry, this special kind of life that is born out of this wintry super death. Right. Yeah. I, okay. I don't, I don't want to say more about it at this point. I think we should circle back around and go through the, the whole poem one more time and then see if we can make, make hay of the ending. Because let me tell you this, uh, after we go through the poem again and get to that last line, there are going to be some level two and possibly level three secret meanings that are going to blow your mind. You heard it here first. Uh, some kind of joke about how poets hate us. One simple trick to find the level three meaning of your poem. Yeah, it's a good joke. <laughs> yeah, trying to trying to stick that one, but... Mm. <laughs> okay, the time of year has grown indifferent. Uh, I feel like there's a connection between different and diffident, and it might just be that they sound similar. They, bo- they do both have diff and ent in them. I mean, I think it's at least worth mentioning that the rhyme that it begins with is the rhyme that it ends with. But also, indifferent and diffident are related in their meaning as well. Yeah. Uh, also worth noting, the time of year has grown indifferent. I think indifferent there does have two meanings. Uh, not different. And then also not caring. Right. There's an anthropomorphic reading of the time of year there, as well as a phenomenological reading of the experience of the time of year. I think actually the not different meaning is the uh, the primary one there, which is interesting because that's not 
that's not the usual meaning of that word. Yeah, I would agree. And it, let, let it also be noted that, that this is the only other occurrence of time except for the ending. Oh, snap. You see how uh, the loop, the poem makes a little loop? Yeah. Uh, this is a thing that, uh, that poems do a lot that is awesome, that I love, where they become this cool little recursive loop onto themselves. Uh, oh, and the poem is about seasons, so it's forming a cycle that continues eternally. It's so good. Uh, and and it literally, it, it, it has the solstices in it. These would function then as the, as the summer and winter solstices. Yeah. It's all coming together. And, and just for the record, we didn't pick like a super cool, extra special poem for this. We just picked a poem. <laughs> I mean, we picked a Stevens poem knowing that it would be super cool. Yeah, but we were not overly familiar with this poem. We got tripped up by that stanza thing earlier. Because one of us was reading from version with this stanza and the other one was reading from the version without it. Yeah, it's pretty funny. So we were all like, in the middle of recording, hey, what's up? This poem is different. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Pretty amusing. Actually, maybe we should keep that in there because it was pretty funny. Oh, I'm going. I'm, I'm going to try to keep a uh, keep a version of that in there. Yeah. Okay. Here's a crazy ass reading. What What if the poet is the time of year? Let's put that on the back burner <laughs> and come back to it. All right. All right. Yeah, I, I feel like we need to have an idea of the conception of what time is in the poem before we can return to the question of the poem being time. The poet being time, rather. Sorry, the poet being time. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, God, the poem being time? That makes no no damn sense. What are you talking about? <laughs> you can swear, man. It's fine. No, I know. I, 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 did, I didn't stop myself from saying no fucking sense out of out of some sort of sense of propriety. I just didn't think it called for that. <laughs> like, you know, save it for when it really makes no fucking sense. Okay. <laughs> like your Pharmacon thing. Yeah, exactly. I don't know, man. I <laughs> I think there's something to that. No, no, see, because it starts with the same couple of letters and it's Greek. It's the same word. <laughs> because I don't think the Greek root is the same. I probably should look that up, but... I I also am not entirely sure that it matters because it's the, it's the type of thing where if Stevens meant to imply that it wouldn't actually matter if it was etymologically true or not. Well, I think he would be more likely to imply it if it was etymologically true because I just think he would be more likely to assume that anyone could ever even possibly get that connection. You know, I don't... Like, I feel like, no, I, I feel like the argument that a connection doesn't need to be etymologically correct is true, but it needs to be stronger than this one. Like, if this was called the man whose pharmacos was bad, then yes. I, I don't disagree with you, but I also don't, enti I don't entirely agree with you that it is that much of a stretch of a reading because it's literally a poem. I mean, the title of the poem is about a medical condition. To make the leap to, to medicine pharmacy is not huge. Yeah, but the thing is that most of our uh, anatomical terms are Greek. And depending on how common the prefix far is. Yeah. Then like, if far is just a common Greek prefix. Listen, I'm not gonna, I'm, I, I'm not gonna 
go to bat for this one. <laughs> no, it's your child. You will fight for it to the death. It's a little bit of an easy out, but I do think it's true with Stevens more than, well, pretty much any other poet I can think of that a reading like that is something that he might have briefly thought about, chuckled and thought, well, if someone wants to read it that way, wouldn't that be funny? No, and I generally agree with you. Like, I'm, I'm trying to think of an example in English. Like, if you were trying, okay, like if a poem had the word got in the title, and then you were trying to make an allusion to like gothic literature, because they start with the same three letters. I think it's a little bit stronger than that, but sure, man. <laughs> like, like, no, the musical Annie Got Her Gun is clearly all about gothic literature because it has the, the, the word God in it. And God is the beginning of gothic. Okay, so I have realized since that the musical is actually called Annie Get Your Gun. So um, it's actually about gothic literature. Yeah, okay, man. I think, okay, no, but I do, I do want to, I do want to say, I think it is important that we say that this is Stevens. I mean, okay, we're going to suggest some out there readings all the time, but people should not be afraid that we are going to throw out quite as many, quite as ridiculous readings with such ease with poets other than Stevens. Well, we will, but... But we'll be more apologetic about it. You know, because we, we, we take an esoteric approach to poetry and everything else where we assume that the poet knows everything. Because it makes it more interesting. And sometimes it's true. It's better to be wrong in assuming a poet knows something than being wrong in assuming that they don't know something. Because if, you're, if you assume that they know a thing, then you might uncover something super cool. And if you assume that they don't know a thing, why are you reading them? To make yourself feel smarter than them. Ha ha, ha ha, Shakespeare couldn't spell them words right. <laughs> yeah. Ah, okay, good reason. Okay, so, moving on. Uh, so we've got the mildew of summer and the deepening snow are both alike in the routine I know. I am too dumbly in my being... I feel like we could parse that last line a couple of different ways, which might be interesting. The obvious reading being just, I am too silently, you know, pent inside my being. But there's a weird, there's a weird parsing where you could read it. I am too dumbly in my being pent. Like as in, in my, as in, in my being pent, not as in, in my being Pent. Can, can you explain that with, in a way other than uh, pronunciation? I, I think I might have been doing a different secondary reading there, but uh, uh, I am too dumbly in my being pent versus I am too dumbly in my being pent. Okay, in one of them, yeah, exactly. Being is modifying pent. The other one, being is. Right. Uh, a noun referring to like a state of being. Uh, now, the the second reading is slightly ungrammatical because you can't just say I am too dumbly, uh, right? The adverb wouldn't be modifying a verb there. But I wouldn't think that that would stop Stevens. 
Well, yeah, being would be the verb in the secondary reading, um, but it dumbly couldn't be modifying it then. So the upshot, though, would be the difference between being pent inside your being, silent because you're pent inside your, your being, or something like silent about being pent in your being or being pent. I don't feel like any of these meanings are terribly contradictory. Well, the one is the one. The second is just calls more attention to the 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 paradox, right? Because well, the poet might be dumbly in his being pent. He's not dumb about being pent. He's literally speaking about being pent right now. Now, uh, although with that second reading, then one might want to take the second reading of dumbly. I'm speaking about being pent badly, stupidly. This is not the way to speak about being pent. And yet here I go. My pharynx is bad, but what have you. I'm at the point where those words have kind of lost all meaning to me. Yeah, my my point was really like the line can mean several different things, but they're not that different. They can all be true at the same time. And it doesn't change that much. And it's one of those cases where the richness of the multiple meanings is additive rather than pointing out something. Yeah, no, no, this is this is too much esoteric digging for for too little esoteric gold. This is just coal, said the prospector who thought he was going to find gold. I don't know what I was doing there. <laughs> like, I think they'd be happy to find coal. Coal mines were a thing. Yeah, that's eh, not overthinking. Just spouting new orations of the coal. <laughs> new orations of the I mean, can we call the podcast that instead um okay so i'm i'm still not seeing much new in this first stanza are you um no rather than the importance of time which we're gonna have to circle back to yeah and the mildew which we already commented on uh, it's interesting how the snow is deepening that's an interesting verb there mm-hmm um which i guess uh well, no, I guess that connects quite nicely to the third stanza, um, winter penetrating all of those layers. So the snow is growing deeper, as if snow is like the depth of winter is growing farther and farther away from the speaker. Oh, that is interesting because that flips the immediate meaning of deepening. Yeah. You think deepening, you think deepening means more winter, but actually it means less winter in that the essential being of winter is being covered over by the inessential aspect of winter. Yeah, I, th- I think that is that, and I think that's interesting. Right, because the essential being of winter is winter as a metaphysical phenomenon, which is the conflation of the seasons. And so winter as an the actual season of winter is just an aspect that papers over the, that essential metaphysical winter. Right. And I don't know if we've said this straight up yet, but uh, the super winter is like death. It's sure. I mean, I mean, I get like it's more interesting than that, but. Yeah, but it, it's like I, I do feel like death is like if, you, if you're wondering what the hell we mean by super winter. <laughs> probably just sub in the word death. Right. It's not. It's not entirely right, but it's it's so much more right than wrong. Yeah, I mean it, it it's it's almost this uh 
entropic sense of death, the point at which all motion is impossible. Yeah, that's a good way of, of putting it. It's it's like the death of universes rather than, than the death of a guy. Yeah, because that's an event. That's drama. It's not it's not death in in the sense of of drama or event. It's death in the sense of total finality or intuition of total finality. Anyway, yeah. Okay, the wind attendant on the solstices blows on the shutters of the metropoles, stirring no poet in his sleep and tolls the grand ideas of the villages. It's a weird stanza, just in terms of word choice. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, here we uh, went into a pretty long and boring digression about meter and musicality uh, that really just lasted forever. So um, I've cut it out and asked Kier to summarize it for you. So let's listen to that now. Okay, uh, so the second stanza is doing some is doing a number of things to make the wind that runs through it uh, feel destabilizing and weird and uninspiring and unmusical to illustrate why it's not getting to the, the, the poet here. Uh, there's, there's some uh, metrical inversions here, which sometimes sound really nice, but in this case, I think feel really weird. Uh, there's inverted first foot with blows on uh, in the second line, and that's repeated in the third line with stirring. But then that makes it feel really weird that no uh, doesn't get a proper metrical stress. So you have to put a non-metrical stress on it, stirring no poet. And the, even those two semi-rhyming words together, stress like that, feel weird. Um, and then we also have a kind of destabilizing switch from the gerund of stirring to the straight verb of tolls where you would expect another gerund. Um, and finally, uh, tolls is, a, a, a harsh single syllable word, uh, that nicely represents, you know, the unexpectedness of, uh, of the bell, uh, but it really stands out when the endings, the ending words of all of the other lines are three syllable. Yeah. And then uh, also just the connection of tolls into the grand ideas of the villages. That doesn't make literal sense, obviously. You can't toll a grand idea. So just with the line break there, you're left reading this sort of like the sense of disconnect, like bells toll the grand ideas of the villages as kind of an unrelated continuation. Right, which I think nicely nicely gets at like uh, and tolls at the, the the sense that this thing that you're tolling is not so, as grand as it as it sounds. I think is is nicely reflected in and and how one is forced to read this line in such an awkward position. Okay, moving on. Uh, anything else to say about that stanza? I. I do wonder why the wind came in here and is nowhere else in the poem. Uh, the wind was in the original uh, cut stanza or in the original uh, first line of the fourth stanza. Yeah, OK. No, it's not. I'm wrong. I read breeze instead of blaze. Nope, it doesn't. I'm wrong. Well, I think I think in the original 
there's an implied lack of wind uh, with summer coming to rest. That just leaves us with this wind that appears and goes nowhere and means nothing, which I think is is appropriate. Right. But if you consider the traditional uh, relation between wind and voice, right, you know, you can you can also read wind here as as the thing that makes speech and therefore poetry possible. Well, or rather that reading is invited and rejected (laughs) right off the bat. This is not a wind that's, I mean, the only thing that this wind speaks is, is the dumb idea of these, these, you know, dumb farmers and their stupid little villages going on about the big solstice hoedown. Right, right. The idea that there is no poetry in the wind, that wind is just a natural phenomenon. And the idea that wind should awaken some kind of meaning, some kind of poetry. But no, it's, you know. Right. Just air right. moving. Okay. It's just air moving and no one cares. Yeah. Except for a bunch of idiots down at the village. Oh, wind's out today, did you see? <laughs> Oh, probably don't do the voice. (laughs) All righty. All right. We get the malady of the quotidian. Perhaps perhaps the winter ones could penetrate through all its purples to the final slate persisting bleakly in an icy haze. What do you make of the the ellipsis at uh, the end of the first line there? Wait, it's... It's four dots. What it, that has a different name, doesn't it? No, I think that's an ellipsis. I think three is an ellipsis. Ooh, this is exciting. I'm pretty sure that's still an ellipsis, man. It's just a more final ellipsis, right? Three, three means there's going to be a connection. Four means it's done with, but unfinished. A thought that is abandoned, unfinished. Yeah, it's an ellipsis followed by a period. Okay, got it. Right. Yeah, so the malady of the quotidian. uh, Right, It's so it's implying, you know, he could go on about this, but, you know, why the hell bother? Also, it gets a little extra fun when you consider that that's the excised stanza. Right. Was there any ellipsis in the original? Well, the website I'm looking at, it does have, but it's a three-period ellipsis. I don't know if that's just the random-ass website. Yeah, yeah, I I don't know if I trust that, but it would kind of make sense. Yeah, let me just pick a random other one. The four dots could, of course, also represent the four lines of the quatrain, which in turn might reflect the four seasons. Except, obviously, not any of that. No, I think you're on to it. No, that's the bad kind of esoteric reading. Anything that involves numbers is generally bullshit. Uh, unless it's a re- unless it's a three-digit number. Anything that involves a one or two-digit number is bullshit. If it's a three-digit number, okay, I'm listening. <laughs> yeah, all right. I mean, if, if, if you've gotten to the point where you can even make an argument with a three-digit number, there must be something there. Yeah, I mean, you know. Unless that number is 666. Ah, uh, the number of Noah Webster. A man mostly known for his words. Yeah, that's when no one saw that number coming. Now we have to get to the big thing where we talk about uh, time. Yeah, okay. So what does it all mean? Well, okay, first of all, 
Is there anything in the third or the fourth stands up until then that we're seeing now that we didn't see before? Last check. Do you got anything? Well, okay, I just do want to call attention to the the fact that the action, the, the poet's action, you know, or, you know, the one's action, which we assume to be the poet or the man whose pharynx was bad, whatever, is conditional upon Winter's action here. So Winter, the entirety of the second half of the poem, basically after Malady of the Quotidian, is predicated on the hypothetical if winter once could penetrate through all its purples to the final slate. So, so winter has to perform the first action. Uh, it's not a matter of the man, you know, awakening to something in winter, seeing something in winter. No, whatever the man sees and gets the, out, of, out of winter that allows the new orations of the cold to be spouted, First, winter has to do a thing. And I wonder if that handing off of responsibility to winter is itself symptomatic of the problem. That's that's all I got. All right. So let's let's move on to uh, the, the time thing and uh, the level two secret meaning. OK, um, one might in turn become less diffident out of such mildew, plucking neater mold and spouting new orations of the cold one might, one might, uh, oh, spouting, fountain spout, as well as people, but fountains can't spout if it's freezing. Yeah, I just imagine that as, uh, like water, like a stream of water breaking free from ice. Yeah, no, I, I think that's, I think that's solid and underlines our reading of the mold. Okay, one might, one might. The repetition there we're going to have to to deal with. Um, but time will not relent. Okay, so so I see two things right, right away. I see one way in which the relentlessness of time obviously serves the meaning we've been hacking out. And that is if you read Superwinter as death, it's all very obvious, right? You know, time will not relent. Everything will die. Fine. But that exists in uneasy tension with a paradox here. Time not relenting in the traditional sense, as in time constantly moving, it argues against the this this notion of, of you know, the seasons disappearing. Time moving... Conti- I mean, I guess... I guess one could deal with it by saying that the seasons blurring together is a function of the relentless march of time. I'm not happy with that. I just think we need to deal with that as an obvious reading. Well, okay. There, there, there are several layers of contradictions here that are a little tricky to unpack. I think it's pretty logical to see time in opposition to super winter. Is that, you know, if we take the idea of, a, of an of entropic death, um, the cessation of motion in the universe... Without motion, time can't exist. Time is determined and measured by change. If nothing can change from this super winter, then time can't exist. So time's continued to exist. Okay. Okay. Right. All right. I wasn't factoring in super winter. That's a that's that's a very good point. So we should clear. Oh, mm. actually, we need super winter and double super winter. I think to be really clear here. What is double super winter? 
Right. So super winter is what happens when when the time of year is grown indifferent. Super winter, I, I know this wasn't how we were using it earlier, but bear with me. Let's call super winter the blurring of the seasons, right? Because the blurring of the seasons has the character of of lifelessness, grayness, drabness, winter. So let's call that super winter. Now, double super winter would be the vision in the third stanza of what would happen if winter once could penetrate through all its purples to the final slate, right? All right, can we call that uh, double secret super winter? Because that one is a secret and holds like uh, the keys to reality and poetry in it. True, okay. So double secret super winter. Uh, so I, I really like what you were saying about the relationship of motionlessness, entropy, and time. Uh, but I, we got to clarify that that is not actually in relation to super winter, but in relation to double secret super winter. Super winter in terms of entropy and time is really more of just a state of endlessness. It's, uh, yeah. It's, it's nihilism. It's, 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 but it's, it's an endless form of nihilism where there, everything continues forever and thereby means nothing. Right. The, the seasons, the relentless march of time means that, you know, so on that, on that level, the relentless march of time just means, yeah, that the seasons continue to blur. Everything is, is just this drab super winter. Now it's, it seems to me that, uh, super winter and double secret super winter, um, are kind of describing two different ways of looking at the same thing. Yeah. Well, although, again, keep in mind that what I said a bit ago about how all of this is predicated on the action of winter itself. So at least for the poet, this second way of looking at it, the double secret super winter way of looking is not available to him except as a hypothetical if winter were to make this change itself. But but agreed. Fundamentally, at least from where we sit, it seems to be a way of approaching the same phenomenon, a way of saying, ah, OK, all of the seasons mean the same thing. Uh, this wind blows around meaning nothing. And these yokels laugh at it. And I hate them so much, uh, you know, but, you know, somehow by. Somehow there's this way of getting deeper into that same experience where you get down to this this bleak final slate and paradoxically are able to pluck out something full of life, something new. And, uh, you know, thinking the idea of them being the same thing, I think, is supported in, you know, it, in the in the contingency of the change in the poet upon the winter um, idea if winter could fucking show itself for what it is then maybe i could write a stupid poem right like i know it's this awful powerful poetic beautiful thing but all i see is this eternity of boring ass days this speaks very much to my experiences as a depressed person trying to do art being like man ah i can see that even in this you know bleakness and feeling of hopelessness i should be able to pull something that means something out of that but instead you're just faced with the series of days that mean nothing and blur together and just all suck right and 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 this desire that the this waiting for the action of winter itself you know this does speak 
so so directly to you know the nature of of inspiration because just you know inspiration can't feel like it comes from from within it needs to feel like it strikes from without right and so is as horrible as as the world might be like there i do get this perverse desire that it my god at least let it be horrible in an interesting way <laughs> but i can't even i can't even see that i can't even be horrified by the horrifying truth anymore yeah, it's almost like the passage of time, like layers snow and mildew over how bad everything is. It's like, you know, sort of a time healing all wounds, but it's just kind of scabbing them over. Right. Let me see the wounds. Let me write a poem about them. <laughs> right. But but yeah, but fuck healing. Mm. And the, the title of the poem references a wound that you can't see, a wound that a wound that only manifests itself in the voice. You tell someone has a sore throat, not by looking at them, but by talking to them. But yeah, it's a, a malady uh, of the quotidian, if you will. Right, the daily. Right, so, okay. So then we could say time will not relent. You know, really what the poet is asking for is to be frozen in the moment of the confrontation with pain. To dwell in the space of something being terrible for a goddamn moment instead of always healing so quickly. And I wonder then, in that reading, doesn't having a bad pharynx take on a almost victorious quality? It does. And that, and that ties in with the existence of the poem itself. It's like, no, I'm not, I keep healing, but my voice is bad. My voice... My poetry. Ah, right. And we see Stevens's uh, double life as a poet and like a regular everyday Joe. Right. The, the poetry is the only thing that 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 shows the the genuine experience, you know, and, and since we know our Greeks, we know that that one that experience that causes us to learn is suffering. Since we know our Greeks. <laughs> Sorry, I, I just couldn't let that sit. I agree. It's awesome. Pate matos, man. You too. A sore throat shows itself through speaking. To speak, ah, so no matter how, how covered over, no matter how scabbed over, no matter how covered over with, with snow, with mildew, uh, the, the visible world is the speech allows us to experience or re-experience the genuine experience, the genuine suffering, it allows it to actually, actually be shown. And that points to the atemporal nature of, of speech as such, right? Here we are, you know, reading this poem written almost 100 years ago. Yep. Using computers now. Amazing things, aren't they? Yeah, you can read a poem over them. Right. So... People say technology isn't relevant to the arts. So time will not relent. No one says that. So so time will not relent is obviously only partially true because time will relent for a man with a sore throat. Oh, and then uh, what one reads here as an empty rhetorical device. Oh, this is good, man. One might. One might. It's... It's a man with a sore throat trying to get his words out. And you can also read that second one might as um, 
Like the first one is saying you might, and the second one is an affirmation of the first. Yeah, you might. However, keep in mind that time won't relent. You can read that both wistfully, the repetition also... Yeah, I like my stuttering reading better, but they clearly coexist. Yes, it's a, their meanings can coexist. Another fun little thing here is that uh, that ties back to the beginning, where it says the time of year has grown indifferent. Will time not relent if it doesn't care? Huh, that's an interesting question. Time will not relent, the time of year has grown indifferent. Right. I mean, I think that points to the relentlessness of time is not personal, right? You know, it's not, it's not actively trying to fuck us over. And that's the goddamn problem, right? You know, it's the same. If it was actively trying to screw us, then we would really have something, something to hate. It's the same as wanting winter to do, to do our work for us, right? We want to actually be able to gaze onto that void, you know, and so it's really annoying when we keep digging holes and still being able to see the bottom of them. But yeah, okay, I'm satisfied with that. I think that I think we definitely got to a a level two secret meaning there. Yeah, level two secret meaning Um, is that haha, it's good to have a bad voice. Oh, and we never even remarked upon the fact that you get a sore throat in winter. I mean, it's dumb, but it's there. Oh, right. Uh, the winter of time makes your throat bad. And that's good. Because you're trying to write a poem, but you can't because winter's too bad. But you're, you still have a sore throat because winter isn't that bad. But your throat is bad, meaning that it feels really bad, meaning you can write a poem about it. So thanks, winter. So thanks, winter. Thanks, heat death of the universe. You suck. I love you. You're better than time. Uh, I think ideally we should end every episode by summing up the poem in one of our hilarious reductive like line or twos. Yeah, sounds good. Uh, It's good for a poet to have a sore throat and winter is better than time. I think that gets at it. Yeah. No, and that's a fun gimmick. I think we can use that to end the show. All right. Let's end the show. Right. All right. Um, All right. Show is ending. Show is ending. Man, it would have been really good if one of us had a sore throat for this episode. Well, I sure do now after all that yakking. Da, 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 da. Did you want to do some sort of sign off like officialness? Oh, I'm just going to edit that in later. Alrighty. That was episode zero of EE Phone Poem. I don't think I'm going to release this on the regular podcast feed. That'll be the next one, which I will call episode one. I'll probably make this available somewhere, though. Yeah, sounds good. If you want more information on the podcast, you can go to eephonepoem.tumblr.com and uh, subscribe, rate, and love us on iTunes. We love you. We love you so much. Thanks for listening. Now it's time for a secret footnote. Ooh, secret. Okay, quick sidebar about my wacky etymological theory earlier. Now, Greek etymology is a very iffy subject, but it does look as if it's at least credible that pharmacon and 
pharynx uh, share a common root. According to the very credible source, a Wiktionary, the free online dictionary, a scholar by the name of Pokorny posited in 1959 that they were both connected to a common Indo-European root, bear, to cut, pierce, or scrape. Obviously, Stevens wouldn't have known that, but the point is that there's no particular reason why Stevens would have assumed that they did not share a common root. Uh, so when you put that together with the fact that our ultimate interpretation of the poem said that the cure for the poet's sore throat was the sore throat. I think the doubleness of the reference to pharmacon there as poison and as medicine was actually more on point than I feared. <laughs>